Welcome to the African Climate Breakdown podcast, a show on climate change with a particular focus on Africa. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Carter, and I lead the coordination unit of the Future Climate for Africa Research Program, or FCFA. We work to improve the understanding of how Africa's climate is changing, how this affects communities, and what can be done to create a climate-resilient future. Join us as we delve into the research of FCFA and hear on-the-ground stories of climate change in Africa. If this is your first time listening in, you've landed on one of the most interesting episodes so far. One of the difficulties with climate change is that it can feel abstract and removed from our daily lives. In this episode, we are delving into the topic from a more personal angle. We'll be looking at the impact of climate change on agriculture and what it means for food security for those of us on the receiving end of the food chain. Every morning holds the potential of a new day. That doesn't necessarily make getting out of bed any easier. Thankfully, there's a great motivator waiting in the kitchen to help us get started. That first cuppa. The question is, when you sit down to sip your tea or coffee, is climate change on your mind? With emerging research on the effects of climate change on the tea and coffee growers, it may very well be. Over the past decades, temperatures have been rising and rainfall has become increasingly erratic. This has had an increasing impact on tea farmers in Africa, who are struggling with more and more crop losses due to heat waves, droughts and flooding. For tea, climate change is particularly concerning. Tea fields take a few years before they become established and start generating any economic yields. But then the same plants can be harvested for decades. So why should we be concerned? Well, since tea can be harvested for so many years, that also means that the plants are probably going to experience a lot of changes over their lifespans. In the worst cases, tea farms which were planted with today's climate in mind might no longer be suitable for growing tea in the decades to come. Tea is not only an important aspect of my morning routine, but it's so important for the economies and livelihoods of tea-growing countries. For example, in Kenya, tea makes up approximately 26% of export earnings and accounts for millions of jobs. So protecting tea is not only about ensuring you can continue to have that morning cuppa, but also about protecting the livelihoods and the communities which grow our tea. Let's hear from some of the smallholder tea farmers in Malawi. I've been in the area for the past 29 years. Uh, We have seen some changes in the weather pattern. We have seen fewer months of rain. So on the smallholder sector, it has been a big problem. And as a result, production in those fields has gone down. Because we have high temperatures, uh, we are having uh, a lot of difficulties in raising up new, new crops. Most of the tea will even die because of high temperatures. So you can see that uh, things are not okay. Sadly, this is just one example of the many impacts of climate change on crops. Climate change may impact everything from the tea we drink to the food we eat. And the farmers who grow our food are on the front line of these impacts. To help us look at this topic in greater depth, we've invited experts, Dr. Neha Mittal, Dr. Adeline Barno, and Dorothy Tembro to discuss the challenges and what is being done. Welcome everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm grateful to have voices speaking to the practicalities of this far-reaching issue. But before we begin, could I ask each of you to give a quick overview of where you're based and what you do? Uh, We can start with Neha. Hi, Susan. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Neha Mittal. I'm a research fellow at the University of Leeds in the UK. I'm part of the Umfula and High Crystal projects, through which I work on the joint project CI4T, which stands for Climate Information for Resilient Tea Production. I work at the intersection of natural and social sciences, where I seek to co-produce knowledge regarding weather and climate by working with climate scientists and different users of information. Great. And Adeline, could I ask you to introduce yourself next? Hello, I'm Adeline Barno, and I'm a crop geneticist and an ethnobiologist at the French National Research Institute for Sustainable Development in France. I've been working as a co-principal investigator on the AMA 2050 project. Together with our African and European partners, we've studied the role that uh, agricultural biodiversity can play in building an agriculture that is both resilient to climate change and sustainable for the future. Um, I'm also very happy to be part of the discussion. Thanks for having me. And lastly, can I ask Dorothy to introduce herself? Thank you, Suzanne. My name is Dorothy Tembo. I am the head of programs working with the Longo Wildlife Trust. This is an organization that aims at conserving and protecting nature in Malawi. And I'm currently in Malawi, in the Longo, where our head office is. Great. I'm going to start then with uh, just uh, getting us going with Neha. You told us a little bit about the Climate Information for Tea project. And I wonder if you could go into a bit more detail. Um, how has this project helped to build the understanding of the effects of climate change for tea farmers in both the short and long term? Sure, Suzanne. Uh, so the CI4T project focused on the two largest tea producing countries of Africa, that is Kenya and Malawi. We worked iteratively with tea sector stakeholders in both countries and climate scientists at the UK Met Office to identify climate characteristics that affect the tea crop. Identifying these characteristics is important because tea is a climate-sensitive crop and information about future changes in average climate is sometimes insufficient for stakeholders to understand potential risks. Uh, so the stakeholder-identified characteristics influence the growth in quality of tea and also their crop management strategies. And these characteristics could vary across regions. For example, Tea stress threshold in Kenya was identified as 27 degrees Celsius, whereas in Malawi, it was 35 degrees Celsius. So when I say heat stress threshold, this is a threshold temperature for a consecutive five-day period that affect growth rate of tea bushes. So we analyzed and developed projections of how these climate characteristics would change by the mid-century and the late-century time horizons given the long lifespan of the tea crop. So even within the tea growing regions in these countries, our analysis was able to provide projections that were specific to particular locations. So overall, the, the crop and location specificity of future climate information increased the relevance of the results for the stakeholders and could help them better understand uncertainties and risks from a changing climate. Could you maybe give us a little bit more of an understanding of how it, it would differ for, for different places? So you said that the characteristics were quite important uh, and specific for different sites. But uh, you know, in, in sites in Malawi, what were the, the, the main um, threats and drivers of climate change that would be important, for example? 
So, for example, I, I'm for uh, for example, Malawi is already facing uh, heat stress conditions, high temperatures. Uh, for example, in 2019, in October, uh, the tea growing regions, especially in the south of Malawi, Mulanji and Cholo, they uh, uh, they observed um, consecutive days more than five above. 35 degrees Celsius, which is the heat stress threshold for, for tea bushes in the region. Uh, and they observed scorching of leaves, uh, reduced growth rate of tea bushes. Uh, of course, the rainfall is important for, uh, for tea growth in both the countries. Uh, but for Malawi, the temperature is very critical. And similarly, in, in, uh, in, in Kenya, while temperature is important, persistent rainfall around the tea growing season is important. So heat stress and the, the length of the growing season, two very different um, uh, characteristics that, that are affecting different, different places in different ways. Thanks very much, Neha. Uh, okay, I'm going to hand over to Adeline. Um, you know, tea crops aren't the only products that are suffering. And in West Africa, the temperatures are increasing. Key staple crops such as pearl millet have been adversely affected already. Could you tell us a bit about the impacts on crops and food security in West Africa and what needs to happen to protect agriculture in the region? As you, as you mentioned, uh, in West Africa, climate change is already uh, threatening food security by uh, reducing uh, crop productivity and increasing harvest uncertainty. And uh, for instance, we already observed a uh, reduced yield of major crops such as uh, permillet, up to 10% from uh, the beginning of the century. The, the specificity of this region is that in this region, the population are mostly rural and uh, are highly dependent uh, uh, and concerned by climate change. Their food security are closely dependent on rain-fed agriculture, which means that there is really a close relationship between productivity and uh, climate uncertainty. You have to imagine that more than 90% of the cultivated lands is under rain-fed agriculture. So future climate change will be an additional constraint on, uh, on, this, uh, on these systems. There is many different types of adaptations and strategies that can be proposed. Under the frame of the AMA 2050 project, we, uh, we try to understand how uh, biodiversity uh, could be an asset uh, to build a sustainable uh, agriculture because we know that biodiversity can uh, pay uh, enhance resilience and adaptation. So if in this project, we, uh, we focus on uh, pearl millet. And the pearl millet is, a, is an interesting species. Uh, it's, first, it represents uh, staple food for more than 90 million people in arid and semi-arid tropical region because it's really adapted to high uh, temperature, which means that it can be adapted to the expected temperature under future climate change. And in a recent studies, we, we tried to study how the most vulnerable area uh, could benefit from already available local diversity. The idea was to uh, look at landresses or local varieties grown in equivalent climate condition today as that could be used for future condition in other location, for instance. And uh, we know that uh, uh, farmers are, are constantly uh, adapting their agriculture uh, by changing their practices, by uh, changing their land, their varieties they are cultivating, by changing their crops. And uh, as researchers, we need to act to go with the farmers to, uh, to find out uh, trajectories 
that could help to build a resilient agriculture. Thanks so much, Adeline. I had a question for you about whether there was a connection between the decrease in rainfall and the biodiversity interventions. Yes, of course. Uh, there is a what we call an insurance, uh, insurance strategy, meaning that if you cultivate a wide diversity of plants or varieties, you might have some of them that are uh, dealing better with a decrease of rain or, as expecting in the future climate change, increase of availability of rain. So meaning that uh, uh, if there is a long time without any rain, uh, some varieties will cope better and will provide food security. Brilliant. Thanks so much. And I'm going to go next to Dorothy. Uh, you've been working with local farmers in Malawi. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the climate change risks that those farmers are facing? Um, so do those farmers have access to climate information? And does it allow them to respond to climate risks? I think when we look at the period, uh, the, the access to climate information has been improving uh, if we compare, I think, to, uh, to previous periods. Um, Currently, uh, the Department of Meteorological Services, the, the Climate Change and Meteorological Services, is able to provide climate information through various platforms. So um, initially, what used to happen is that the farmers would access the information. Basically, what we are talking about is the forecast, which is the six months forecast uh, information. We call it seasonal forecast, which it covers basically October um, of the year to much of the other period. So they would get that information through the radio and also maybe newspaper for those that are able to read. But in recent years, we've seen that the Department of Climate Change and Meteorological Services, of course, through also through other projects that we're funding at the department, we are able to distill that type of information into the local languages, but also into the usable languages that the farmers could understand. But it also varies across the um, the country, depending on what type of forecasting is there. Uh, I can also share with you that uh, in recent times, we are able to get the distilled information to local units, like, for example, a district, because initially we would just get for the whole country, and then we went to the regional, and then now to district level. And I'm hearing that it's now going to go into the traditional areas. These are smaller units within the districts. It means that I think in terms of uh, um, in terms of probabilities, we we'll have more used information or closer to practical um, forecasts that an area would be able to uh, to realize at the end of the day. So the climate risks that the country has been experiencing, like the flash floods and predictable rainfall, the dry spells, and all that, I'm sure that the farmers will get prepared. Uh, with such information that comes from Department of Climate Change and Meteorological Services with time. Well, that's great. And so, that, I mean, the climate information that they are getting is becoming more and more localised. Um, so that's really, really how you're saying that it, it makes it more useful for the, for the end user. Yes. I'm then going to jump back to Neha and just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you have been engaging with uh, the farmers and decision makers in the tea sector. Uh, well, most of the tea growers we interacted uh, with already noticed the, the changing climate patterns and, and that really helped in, um, in starting the conversation. And many even had analyzed the local weather station data that showed increasing temperatures and changing rainfall patterns over the last few decades. 
So in our initial interactions, we tried to learn more about what they had observed and how the recent changes or events had affected their growth. So our analysis of future projections improved their understanding of potential future changes and how those changes would impact the tea crop. And I think for adaptation, uh, it was important also to understand that climate change is one of the several factors that tea growers have to consider in terms of future risks and addressing them. Because these factors could include uh, cost implications, past experiences with different crop management strategies, or local environmental changes, global tea markets, and price fluctuations, among others. So I think it's important to consider during these conversations that climate change is an additional stressor that tea producers have to take into account when they make long-term decisions. Uh, so keeping that uh, that in mind, I think uh, that helped us to uh, to engage engage well with the, the tea producers and farmers. And uh, what what kind of strategies could these farmers undertake to make themselves more climate resilient, but bearing in mind that they are doing this in tandem with all the other factors? Um, so understanding the range of potential future climate changes can help farmers plan better their crop management practices. These could include tea varieties uh, that would be preferable under high temperatures and increasing heat stress. And another uh, low regret options would be focusing on good agricultural practices like mulching or other soil and water conservation measures, which can help manage the crop better under increasing rainfall and temperature extremes. Moreover, farmers can take decisions regarding long-term investments for a range of adaptation options like irrigation, shade trees, or even crop diversification. Adeline, could you maybe speak a bit about how you've been engaging with the community and decision makers around your findings? In the frame of the Ahmed 2050 project, um, our aim was to improve our understanding how the West African agriculture will be affected by climate change and how we could use this information most effectively for decision making. And for that, uh, we needed to engage a diversity of stakeholders and support dialogue among them. But how to do it? Uh, it's not an easy task. And we chose to use a forum theater approach. It's quite difficult to establish a space for dialogues uh, between stakeholders when uh, there are unbalanced power relationships, such as uh, between farmers and, uh, and decision makers. So we had to be innovative uh, in a way to engage a diversity of climate information users. And forum theater is a, it's a form of uh, participatory theaters, which is made to discuss relationships of powers. So it's a, it's a type of theater which turns uh, audience into active spect actors. So within this project, what we've done is, as a team of climate scientists, crop geneticists, and social scientists, we worked together with a Senegalese theater company named Kaduyaha, and we co-construct a play based on the diversity of experience in the fields and with farmers. And this play was titled I Acclimatize uh, Therefore I Am. And we, through this play, we explore um, the complexity of climate change, uh, like uncertainty, because it's not easy to explain uncertainty for farmers, for instance, 
uh, how to uh, discuss climate and to uh, exchange climate information. And we explore also the difficulties that we can encounter when we implement adaptation option. So uh, through this play, we explore and compare experience, agendas, and sometimes the motivation uh, of factors that can be uh, different to implement adaptation option. So in this play, we have uh, different characters. We have uh, donors, we have scientists, we have uh, local elected, and we have farmers. And uh, it was really interesting because we, this play was performed uh, several times across a diversity of audience. So we have audience uh, among farmers in two villages. We also had audience uh, among uh, researchers through workshop or even uh, through conference. And we also have uh, audience where you could have in the same place, farmers, decision makers, uh, NGOs, researchers. And uh, it, it was really interesting because uh, it was innovative way of building a common ground between different kinds of actors. Uh, there were really lively debates. Uh, and the fact that uh, spectators can focus on fictional characters, uh, it avoids pointing directly uh, either institution, organization or colleagues. So you can really say what you feel. Uh, your, you know, uh, what you, uh, what you agree or not agree with, without people in the audience feeling judged. So there is really a, a free way of talking. Adeline, how does Theatre Forum allow the exploration of different scenarios to help make choices at different scales? This point is really interesting with Theatre Forum because at, at the end of, uh, of the play, spectators can, uh, can suggest and test possible solutions. Meaning that uh, if, uh, if there is an adaptation option that the spectators want to, uh, to try, it will uh, jump on the scene and, uh, and play uh, the role of one actor and then propose this solution. And interestingly, uh, there is all the other actors that can uh, tell if this solution is a, is a good option or not, depending on the scale, uh, spatial scale. For example, is it a good solution at a local scale, farm, uh, farmer scale or village scale, but it's not working at a national scale for decision makers. So it's interesting because you, you can have uh, bottom-up and uh, solutions uh, coming from farmers up to uh, decision makers that can be discussed collectively with all the actors that can be involved to uh, transform uh, a possible option in, uh, in a policy. And, uh, and we can, through this, uh, this collective discussion, you can test the limit of the different adaptation options and the constraints that those adaptation options will have for the different uh, uh, stakeholders. One day, through a, a play, a stakeholders, uh, NGO uh, spectators told me that in a few minutes, we managed to... Uh, to put in discussion challenges that took several months of discussion over uh, other projects because it really uh, helped to raise the issue and to go toward the discussion. Great. And so that really sounds like the, the key message for me is, is that the Theatre Forum created that space to have those conversations that don't otherwise happen because of the power dynamics and because of the, the, the asymmetries of, of, of knowledge and things like that. So it really brings people into sort of a a healthy space to have to have a bit of more of a connection with the the people that they're working with. So that sounds fantastic, Dorothy. I'm going to go back to you and ask you a similar question 
about engagement processes with stakeholders. Could you maybe tell us how you used engagement approaches in your research with the farmers in Malawi? So in the research, um, I was looking at the participatory scenario planning. This is the engagement process that uh, we invented or we adopted from Kenya. So it was Kenya that initially uh, introduced this to us. So it's just, uh, PSP is just a process where uh, different stakeholders come together to share the seasonal forecast for the uh, for that particular season. So uh, different stakeholders are engaged in that, representing different sectors like agriculture, disaster, the economic department. Uh, you look at the maybe the, the, the irrigation, the crops and the like. But then everybody has a part to play in that particular meeting or platform. So in that particular platform is where the uh, Department of Climate Change and Meteorological Services is trying to share the different scenarios as places on a forecast for that particular season. So they will, normally we share the three scenarios. For example, there's uh, maybe above, below, and normal rainfall that may come um, in that particular season. So those are the different scenarios that you look at. So in that particular scenarios, you're trying to bring up the hazards that may come in different scenarios. So for example, maybe in the above, um, above normal, what type of hazards may come and what impacts may come. So different stakeholders will be kind of sharing the, the different hazards in their particular sector. For example, in the healthy department, they'll be able to say, as a result of high rainfall, this is what we're going to have, like maybe cholera as a disease. Department of Disaster is going to talk about maybe the, uh, the floods and, and the like. So that's what normally happens because they are sitting in a platform where they're engaging each other to share different details of the, the focus. Out of that, they look at the impacts uh, of the different uh, hazards that may come. And then they try to look at the, what would be the opportunities. For example, what would be the opportunities of the high landfall or, or even a drought when if it's below uh, normal landfall or if it's normal landfall, what, what are the opportunities that are there? And then they develop messages which they can share around. What are the different messages that we can share to the farmers? That, for example, if a district A has a scenario of above landfall, what should we expect from here? So the farmers should be able to understand and also appreciate the different scenarios that come as a result of the seasonal forecast. So since this is given before the season, around August, our season basically starts in October, they should be able to make decisions out of that different scenarios that are there. How does the interaction with the communities and especially women help change their perception of using seasonal forecasts? As, as per women, you may understand that the, uh, the majority of farmers or the majority uh, of producers in the smallholder farmers are women. So regardless of that, they may be living in a male-headed household, but it's a woman that is providing more labor uh, in the production of um, of any crops, the men are basically involved in the marketing of of the produce, and the women have been involved uh, in the PSP as well. So we realized that involving women also helped us as we we understand that women will align themselves to the information they've got and they will use the information that they've got. Oh, that's fantastic! Thanks so much for sharing all of these great insights and. I wanted to say thank you to all of you for the great work that you've been doing and for sharing it with us. 
It's great to hear that all across Africa, different farmers and decision makers are considering and taking steps towards climate resilience in the agricultural sector. As the difficulties of climate change become increasingly diverse, so must our solutions. In this next segment, we'll discuss how to support rural livelihoods through a more creative approach. Dr. Grady Walker is a senior research officer of the Walker Institute at the University of Reading. He's been working as a postdoc research associate for the Rural Livelihoods team of the High Crystal Project. Thanks so much for joining us, Grady. Could you tell us a bit more about how climate change is impacting rural livelihoods in East Africa and the work that High Crystal has been doing to support these communities? Hi, Suzanne. Thanks um, very much. First off, I'd like to thank you again for having me on the Africa Climate Breakdown podcast. Um, I'll begin by saying that climate change is significantly impacting rural communities in East Africa. Of course, farmers and particularly smallholders and family farmers are dependent on seasons and seasonal rains. Changes in rainfall and temperature, these affect crops and crop yields, and they also impact the Lake Victoria fisheries. Now, how the climate will change in the coming decades is uncertain. Our high crystal climate scientists have provided us with um, what we call climate risk narratives or climate futures basically giving us some tangible examples of possible futures that people in rural East Africa might experience. Now, these give us something that we can take to stakeholders to help them with planning and preparing for seasonal changes and resilience work. We in the rural pilot, we use a variety of methods and approaches, not just to deliver information that is contextually usable, but importantly, we wanna build these lasting networks and the infrastructure that will be needed in the coming years to adapt to both climate change and the other changes that will come as a result, such as the movement of people through migration. We understand that adaptation simply doesn't happen within the timescales of these projects, but it involves a continuing and lasting multi-stakeholder partnership. So a large part of what we do as a rural pilot is building these partnerships that we hope will have a real legacy. You've been spearheading quite an innovative approach with farmers training them in filmmaking to share their experiences of climate risks and giving them the ability to tell their own stories of adaptation. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar, agriculture extension services are essentially those services provided to farmers to make better decisions, to be more resilient to climate shocks and other stresses. Grady, can you tell me what made you choose to use films to help close the gap in extension services? I had mentioned that I I'm a researcher who focuses on visual methods. Now, visual methods include the use of film and video production as part of research. My background is actually in film production. I used to be a documentary filmmaker. So I think visual storytellers are very powerful. Film and video is a very powerful medium. It transcends illiteracy for one. Today, they're easily shareable, easily consumable. People can share them over WhatsApp very rapidly. The proliferation of video around the world is not something I need to go into great detail about. I think we're all aware of it. But importantly, the production of films and videos and telling your own story is a process that's enjoyable for the participants. They like doing it. I've been to lots of workshops and activities where people are brought together and they go over in detailed discussion with post-it notes and pieces of sticky paper um, details about their community or about their livelihoods, etc. This is something different. It allows people the chance to learn a new skill, how to produce a, 
uh, a relatively good looking short video or short film. And that people are very eager and interested to do that. Now, if we can take that ability and move it into this space that you just mentioned in your question, agriculture extension, there's, uh, uh, there's the chance for a very um, powerful thing to happen. The farmer champions can now share innovations that they're making on their farms with their peers very easily. For example, if you're one of the farmer champions who has the capacity to make an adaptation to climate change, you want your neighbors to know about it. There's no one in government that's going to come and talk to those neighbors about these types of adaptations. Now you can record it, um, integrate it into a story and share it with your peers. So that was the initial idea that we had in terms of um, boosting the capacity for adaptation within the district. Building upon that was the exchange with local government because we knew now that the farmer champions had produced stories. They had made shareable short little videos of three to four minutes long. And this would be a perfect opportunity for them to meet with local government, share these with local government, and open up a dialogue that we hoped would then end with the exchange of mobile phone numbers, people getting to know each other for the first time. Come the end of the project, those connections we hope will last. And when adaptation decisions are being made at the district level, we hope that those planners will now have in mind the farmer champions and the messages that they were delivered uh, on that exchange day. And can you just maybe give me a little bit more information about how this initiative came about and uh, what spurred this action? Yeah, sure. So this really came about as um, a response to what is called a last mile problem. So we know that adaptation won't be effective if it simply involves giving the latest climate change information um, with all of its uncertainty to planners who are looking at a two to three year time scale. We've tried to reduce the uncertainty in the longer term projections um, by providing these climate futures, which I mentioned earlier, which we call risk narratives. But these futures still offer scenarios that are opposites. For example, one future for East Africa involves it becoming much wetter, while another future involves the region becoming much drier. And these are the uncertainties in the climate projections. That's very difficult for a planner to work with, especially if you're a planner who is looking at a two to five year timescales and these are 10 to 40 to 50 year projections. So even when local governments do have this information, where's the evidence that they will, that they will use it wisely? I suppose we challenge this assumption that good science always results in good decisions. I think history has shown us that that isn't necessarily the case. So we believe the local communities have to be involved because they're the ones that will genuinely be looking out for their own interests. So this initiative was, re was really an attempt at bringing these stakeholders together, community members and local government, in the hopes of not just achieving short-term outcomes, but building long-term long connections. And so far, have you seen any, any evidence that uh, having the farmer champions share their stories directly, you know, in their own words, their own films, has that had more of an impact than, for example, sharing the climate risk narratives and futures? Well, yeah, we believe it has. Um, first of all, there was an immediate um, outcome from that meeting. The local government um, committed to increasing the budget for extension services within the district as directly following that meeting. Also, um, the farmer champions, they now had something that they could take with them upon which future meetings could be predicated. They had stories that they had created, which 
is a legacy artifact that they can use come the end of the project. And they've already demonstrated this. On their own initiative, they met with the National Planning Authority in Uganda and facilitated a screening and discussion of their climate change stories with them. And that was something that was not an outcome of the activity. It was something that we did not expect, but it was something that they organized completely on their own initiative. And while the videos that they made may not be used well into the future, the skills that they have are ones that they can carry with them. And these are people who have mobile phones and smartphones. And, you know, as we know, smartphones have a very high penetration rate, even in rural areas in, in Uganda. And they are able to make stories and tell stories and share them peer to peer, essentially, which is also what we're looking for because of this lack of extension uh, and advisory services. Essentially, this has been an empowering ex experience for the farmers where they're able to tell their own stories advocate for the, the changes that they need within the, you know, as you said, more extension services, but also it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's resulted in actual changes in terms of budget, which is, it's fantastic. Um, I have just one last question for you about, um, you know, what was the farmer's experience of, of producing these, these films and you know, people who haven't had much experience with film and, and uh, putting these things together, uh, did they enjoy it? Was it something that they found easy or hard? Uh, maybe you could give a reflection on that. It's incredibly important for the farmers that they're able to share their own experiences and not just be told things or be told what to do, which is the limitation of a lot of these products that are developed by outsiders or developed by universities or NGOs and then delivered to farmers. So the ability to tell your own story, it, it has an impact. Everyone likes to tell stories. They like to share stories and they like to listen to others. And the, the act of crafting a story makes you take your life or your community or your home district and place it into a narrative, which then lets you think about it objectively. Now your life or your farm or your community is something that can be an objective conversational talking point rather than your own subjective experience. So other farmers can talk about it. You can share it with government stakeholders, etc. And that's a very important part of the process. And all, all the feedback we've received is that the farmers really enjoyed it and they've actually gone on to produce films of their own, which was what we had hoped for initially. Let's hear from one of the farmer champions, Christine Nalubega, on her experience. I learned capturing videos and photos, and I want to share this with my fellow workers. If I can share all the best agricultural practices and experience, through my experience, through videos and photographs, it can have a big impact to the rural farmers in the community, extension farmers, sub-counties, districts, and Minister of Agriculture. It's really great to hear directly from one of the farmers who benefited from this project. Thank you, Grady, for sharing a bit more about your research. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on this episode. What an interesting episode. I've had a wonderful time with all of my guests, and I hope you have too. There are so many things that I feel are key, so it's going to be difficult to choose which stuck with me the most. But one thing I can safely say is that now every time I take a sip of tea or go to the store for fruit and vegetables, I might pause and reflect on how close to home climate change truly is and remember the teams that are working towards a sustainable solution for all of us. A few other things that are going to stay with me are the need to break down the barriers between researchers, farmers, and decision makers. Creative ways to do that, such as theater forum and filmmaking, 
highlight the importance of creating a level playing field for everyone involved to share their voice and how ultimately this leads to better and more resilient agricultural practices being implemented. And secondly, it's important to keep in mind that climate change is an additional stressor to farmers that they have to take into account when making long-term decisions. The more they know, the more likely it is that they will make better decisions. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. We would love to hear from our listeners. And if you have any questions or comments, please email info at futureclimateafrica.org. If you'd like to learn more about what we mentioned in this podcast, please visit futureclimateafrica.org. You can also follow us on Twitter on the handle at future underscore climate or on LinkedIn under Future Climate for Africa. Take a look at the podcast show notes for links to more information about the topics discussed. Join us again next time for our final episode, where we'll reflect on the impact of the Future Climate for Africa program 